So let's move on to talk about early Christianity a bit now. We're going to get more now into the functions of personified evil in a way that we haven't yet had the opportunity to do so. Because so far we've been looking at the predecessors of Satan, in other words, ideas that came to play a role in Satan's story, and then the very beginnings of a story of a fallen angel, the very beginnings of other Judeans, Jews, talking about evil personified and why it's evil in this world because of evil personified. So we, it's only the beginning of the story. There hasn't really been much opportunity for a whole discourse to develop, a whole set of ideas and ways of using those ideas to develop yet. But once you get the idea of personified evil, once you have the fallen angels, and then that beginning to tie up with figures like Satan or or the arrogant kings in the Hebrew Bible. Once you have these start starting to pull together and become a story together, you begin to have that as a tool that can be used. Let's put it that way. Although the people who are doing that don't express it that way. It can be used rhetorically in different contexts, these stories of personified evil. And as we go through the course, we'll see there's two ways in which we can examine the sort of functions of personified evil within discourses, within people talking to one another, or at one another, or about one another. One is they're used internally. So internal struggles within a certain cultural group. Judeans against Judeans. Let's say the Dead Sea sect dislike other Judeans and might start to use the language of the minion of Belial and followers of Belial and the wicked ones to describe fellow Judeans. Internally, within your cultural group, using the rhetoric or the discourse of evil in order to demonize your enemies within. Now, obviously, the line between what's internal and what's external is debatable, but keep these two categories in mind, and then we'll walk through the course seeing this uh, happening. The other is the external function of discourses of evil of talking about evil and of labeling people evil. In other words, you're a group like the early followers of Jesus, obscure minority group, everyone in the city where you live in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, everyone else is worshiping the traditional Greek and Roman deities. You're this oddball group that likes to say none of those gods exist or, or there's other ways of looking at it, but anyway, we'll get into that. And so you begin to have the rhetoric of evil to describe people outside your group. We're the righteous, the Jesus group. They're the wicked. Oh, they're on the side of demons. Satan is doing his work among the people that don't belong to us. So there's that internal function of the rhetoric of Satan and the external function. And we'll see that already by the first century CE when we have stories of Satan and the way they're used and expressed within the earliest Christian literature illustrates these two different functions and two different dynamics of how uh, evil language, the language of Satan, functions. We're talking about a more sociological question in a way. When we talk about this internal relations within a group and the use of language of Satan in the battles between one subgroup and another subgroup, and the use of evil language between the group and broader society. We've already explained quite, hopefully, well enough that you understand 
that the birth of Satan, the origins of Satan, his womb, so to speak, is Judean apocalypticism. That's the ideology within which Satan is born. And we've already suggested it's around 225 BCE that we first get a glimpse of it formulating more clearly. Obviously, there's predecessors to that we've looked at, but even in First Enoch, that earliest document we have, where there's already a story of fallen angels, there are traditions that that author is using that already existed. So it predates 225 BCE, but that's when we first get a glimpse of it. That whole scenario of apocalypticism is Judean apocalypticism, and it's within that framework that Satan emerges, and almost all the early Jesus movements seem to be examples of Judean apocalyptic movements. So you would look long and hard to try and find early Christians who don't think Satan is an important figure. There are some anomalies that don't think demons have a role to play in what's going on, that don't think Jesus is central in the battle against evil. It's an apocalyptic movement. It's an example of a Judean apocalyptic movement. There is a diversity of groups that emerge out of these followers of Jesus who have differences among one another, but one of the common denominators among most of them is this apocalypticism. The early Jesus movements, though, end up becoming primarily Gentile, as you may know. Gentile is just the word the Judeans use to say everyone else. They become primarily Greeks, Romans, Syrians, non-Judeans. Paul, and maybe a few others, have the idea that this Judean movement is for everyone, and go out into the Greco-Roman world and teach that Greeks and Romans have to adopt worship of the Judean God. Let's move on to some of the early stories about Jesus and how they portray Jesus in relationship to evil personified and how this apocalyptic worldview we're talking about is already playing a role in the earliest Christian authors we have. But I wanted to start with Jesus and move to Paul. It might make more sense to you in some ways, even though I want to clarify that our earliest evidence for any follower of Jesus are the letters of Paul. How do some of these early Christian authors, these early followers of Jesus, write out a story about Jesus? And what role does evil and Satan play within the stories they write about Jesus? That's what we want to look at right now. What I can say to you is this, that the earliest writings telling the story of Jesus, the earliest Gospels we have, portray Jesus as a central figure battling against evil powers on behalf of God. A figure sent by God, in part, to battle evil for God. And so demons and Satan come to play a fundamental role in the way that the early Christians who wrote these stories tell the story of Jesus. So we're talking now about the synoptic portrayal of Jesus, the Matthew, Mark, Luke style of telling the story of Jesus and his importance. That one for sure has demons and Satan at its heart. All of the synoptic gospels portray Jesus as though he went around talking about the kingdom of God everywhere he went. This is the, the main content of the teachings of Jesus if you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now something you need to realize that might immediately help you to connect that notion to the apocalyptic worldview that we've already been talking about. If you look consistently at what the kingdom of God means in the different places, 
The idea that emerges is the reign of God, the controlling power of God. So the Gospel of Mark, which you did read the first couple chapters of, the first thing attributed to Jesus, as though Jesus is saying it, in the story that Mark tells, is what? Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The reign of God has come near. The reign of God is about to be implemented. The power of God over his, his dominion, over everything, is about to be implemented in a way that has not yet been the case, is a way of putting that. Mark is most likely written around in the 70s CE, about 40 years after the death of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, most likely written in the 80s or 90s CE, from the last decades of the first century here. And this is how they're looking back at Jesus. This is what they think Jesus was all about when they tell a story about him. He's all about the reign of God being implemented in a way that it hasn't yet been implemented. And then as the story goes on, you begin to see that these authors are portraying Jesus as though Jesus has a role to play in the implementation of the reign of God. As you can imagine, implementing in a full way the reign of God, as they're understanding it here, might have some implication uh, in relation to concepts like the dominion of Belial. The Dead Sea sect Judeans living out in the desert before ever there was a Jesus said, we're living in the dominion of Belial, but there's a time when the dominion of Belial will end and God will intervene. This seems to be a similar concept to what we're seeing here attributed to Jesus. The reign of God, the dominion of God is about to be implemented in a way that will do away with someone else's dominion, that will do away with someone else's power, namely the power of evil. Just before the first thing that Jesus says, you have the story of Jesus going out into the desert. It's so short in Mark that you sort of skip over. It's only one sentence. In Matthew and Luke, they like to give you more of the story there and develop it. But take a look at verses 12 to 13. So this is just before Jesus' first words in the narrative. He's out in the desert, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the desert right after he's been baptized. He was in the desert 40 days, tempted by Satan. Satan appears pretty early in the story to tell you he's an important character, right? And he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. This one doesn't develop it. Mark doesn't develop that story. He didn't talk about what Satan said or did or anything. But it has this idea of Satan there as a key figure in the very first verses of the whole story. Followed by Jesus proclaiming, the reign of God instead of the reign of Satan is here. Let's look at Luke's version just to see how that expands out. We don't want to blend these all together. You want to keep in your mind separate what Mark does versus what Matthew or Luke do. But nonetheless, while we're on the question of this idea of Jesus being out in the desert, being tempted or tested by a figure called Satan, it's worth looking at the more expanded story of it. So take a look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, Diabolos. So it's a different term for Satan, evil personified used here, than you have in Mark. In Mark it's transliterated Satan, like taking the Hebrew word Satan and making it into Greek letters. Whereas here it's Diabolos, which is what we consistently translate as devil. 
Diabolos, by the way, it comes from the word for throwing against, accusation, causing to stumble, throwing against something. So anyways, that's what the name of Satan, the evil personified, is here. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, he ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then he led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdom of the world. Take a look at this one. This is very important for what we've been talking about. So the devil is taking Jesus and saying, up on a hill, on the top place, and saying, look at all this. And the devil said to Jesus, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So the devil says, I've got dominion here. This is the dominion of the devil, the dominion of Belial, the dominion of Satan. I have control. Evil is dominant. I rule. Remember that Jesus is proclaiming God's reign, God's dominion is near, which will counteract the dominion of Satan. And here, Jesus does the right thing and doesn't worship Satan, right? Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on a pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. That's considerably expanded, isn't it, from that, the two lines or two sentences you get in, in Mark. So uh, other Christians had more expanded stories of, of, of these things. What else did you see in these first three chapters of Mark that might help you move from that beginning point to seeing other ways in which Jesus is portrayed interacting with evil. There's consistent stories of Jesus casting out evil spirits or unclean spirits are sometimes called. So we have these, uh, the, the story continues. He's proclaiming the reign of God is coming in a way that hasn't come yet. And then many of his actions, Jesus' actions, are portrayed as casting out demons or evil spirits. This is a battle, isn't it? The first one occurs already in the first chapter, verse 21 of chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Right? So this is the beginning of the, the, beginning of the end of the battle. The battle's been always going on, Right? in the mindset of authors like this, apocalyptic thinkers. The current age is dominated by evil, but now it's coming to its close. The current dominion of Belial, let's call it, or dominion of Satan, is coming to its close. And Jesus is portrayed in the story as God's sent figure to help bring it to its close. There's one particular case of casting out of demons that we need to pay special attention to before we take a break. And that is what is known as the Beelzebub controversy. 
Beelzebub is a play on probably the name of a Baal. You guys already know what Baal means. Baal is just the Ugaritic way of saying Lord. And so many of their gods in Phoenicia, in Ugarit, and in Canaan, the cultures here have many gods that are known as Baals, lords. So they have Baal of such and such a place, Baal with such and such an epithet. So Beelzebub is a play on the name of one of these Baals that we're not quite sure what the original meaning was. But it came to be called Lord of the Flies as a derogatory way to talk about someone else's god. And then it came to be the name of the Prince of Demons. In the Gospels, Jesus gets accused of being associated with Beelzebub. Take a look at it in the Mark version. So this is Mark chapter 3, verses 19 and following. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. Or Beelzebub is an alternate, alternate spelling of it. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom, if a reign, if a dominion is divided against itself, that dominion cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house, the strong man here being Satan, and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house shall be plundered. He's just finished saying the end for Satan is near, but it's not because it's Satan divided against himself. It's because God is intervening now to put an end to Satan, and I'm here to, to bind Satan for his final undoing. That's the way that the story of Jesus is being told here. There's quite a few others that we could look at, but look at Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. The enemy is Satan, right? The enemy is evil personified in his demons. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, etc. But what it's clearly saying is Satan is falling, either on the model of he already fell and he's going to fall again. This is the end of Satan. What I'm doing now. You just come back, you 70, and you've been successfully casting out demons. You're surprised at that? Well, don't be surprised. This right now is the end of Satan. 